Warning. Home Truths is about real life, and real life can be distressing. Topics covered may include descriptions of domestic violence, sexual abuse, addiction, or mental health issues. Listener discretion is advised. A listener production. I'm Wendy Searle, and this is Home Truths. I remember distinctly a vehicle following me too closely. I had enough. I remember putting the window down first, my arm out, pointing, pull over, and then they weren't. So I just went out to this car behind me and there was a big dude and his partner in there and I just started trying to smash the windows of this car in, just bare hand, just trying to punch the doors in. And uh, I heard his girlfriend saying, go, 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 and they mounted the curb and hit a little tree and kept going and sped off. And then I got back to the car, hopped in, turned off the hazard lights, drove home. And I I call it like I sort of came to. I sort of woke up and went, what the hell was that? Kieran didn't always fly off the handle this easily, but a series of events during his life left him with a short fuse. And it meant that outbursts like this weren't uncommon. We grew up in southeast Queensland, just north of the theme parks on the north end of the Gold Coast around Coomera. Irish Catholics, and as many would be thinking, yes, large, uh, six boys, six girls, semi-rural, so it made sense for a large family to have a cow that you could, you know, get your dairy from and chickens for the poultry you required and um, pigs at times too, you know, pork. I remember mum always being there. You know, she had to be a full-time mother. She was not, I wouldn't say hard, but she was certainly firm, but fair as well. We called dad the silverback for a reason. (laughs) So, you know, the mountain gorillas. So physically he was a, you know, intimidating sort of character. He was definitely more brutal, uh, particularly with the first uh, or the oldest six children. Um, Growing up, you can easily feel traumatised and victimised by that uh, upbringing given the, the the time that we were brought up in the 80s and a huge family and such a small income that the frustrations and pressures can lead to anger. And uh, sometimes when we're angry, uh, you can get quite violent. Um, but he did the best of what he thought he could do at the time. He kept the machine running, the machine that is the family, the house. We knew we had jobs to do. We had to do them and we did them. So... Um, it got stuff done. Was it the best way to do it all the time? Perhaps not, but um, the uh, lawn never grew grew long anyway. <laughs> the pigs never went hungry. Karen's family of 14 had their own way of doing things. And when he left home to study, he had to find his own way too. Uh, as soon as I finished high school, I applied for an architectural diploma up in Brisbane. So I left home when I was about 17 and a half, a little little younger. Joined in a, uh, a rental house with two other people and learned to pay the bills and um, do it all on my own from then. Three of my older brothers would come around and they had a nice car. They'd fill my pantry with some food and beer and they'd say, what are you doing, you, you know, povo uni student? And I, I thought about it and I thought, what am I doing? I'm, you know, quite artistic. So I thought architecture would be a good fit. But no, I you know, decided to quit halfway through that diploma and um, join the army. 
so it was actually on the midnight, 13th of June, I turned 19 and that was when I walked off the bus to basic training. It was funny, you know, because there were grown men running around whinging and crying (laughs) and I didn't understand what they were so worried about because I felt my upbringing at home was easier than basic training, (laughs) you know. So... I said, guys, what's, what's the matter? They're like, oh, they're shouting at us. They're, they're calling us profanities and this and that. And we've got to do this and we've got, to, we've got no freedom. I'm like, it's fantastic. You, you've got a lot of space in your room. You, you get meals cooked for you. You don't have to wash up. <laughs> you don't have to take the scrap bucket out and feed the pigs. Like, the yelling's not as bad as the silverback. I mean, what, what's the matter here? You're getting free physical training. We get to shoot guns. You know, <laughs> to me, it actually was like a a little fitness lifestyle camp because I suppose my upbringing was in in some ways kind of similar but perhaps even more brutal. So basic training for me, uh, a breeze. I, I loved brotherhood, sisterhood, so I got that as well. In fact, I was looking forward to impressing upon my other brothers that, you know, I'm not just an artist, it's sensitive and concerned about feelings all the time. I can do the brutal thing and I, and I did it well. And then that was that for basic training. The first tour I did was to East Timor, 2002, May, for their independence. No real problems, no real issues, just the anticipation of what you thought it could be. The next sort of, I guess it's an operation, was the border security for the boats coming in at the time, the illegal vessels, so to speak. Um, Same thing, You, you trained and trained and trained, and then when it happens, it's not a big deal. And then the more brutal operations, I suppose, were Afghanistan. So 2008, I went over. 2009, I went over. And 2010, went again. What was it like? If I give you an honest reflection, most soldiers, if if we did this objectively, let's put a camera on my helmet from the day I land and to the day I leave and play back that camera in front of a panel of observers. 90% of the time, it was okay. It, it was no dramas. What that doesn't show, though, is the stress hormones, um, cortisol, anxiety of indirect rocket attacks, going outside the wire and the anticipation of hitting a improvised explosive or being shot at. So while 90% of the time it was okay, in, in my mind, most of the time I was at a heightened, I don't know, anxiety, uh, fear for what could happen. And, and that would be wise to be that way, I think, anyway, or smart to be that way. So coming back off the second tour, I was, um, my partner at the time, she said, you're, you're different. But I didn't recognise the difference. She did. I remember going through a shopping centre with her and a man was coming down the escalators. He just looked at me. He did nothing wrong. And I reached across the escalator as I was coming up. He was coming down. I reached across and I just tried to attack him. Even when he was at home, Kieran couldn't switch off. He'd been trained for war zones and to react instantly to threats and attacks. And he still reacted, even when the threats weren't real. He was constantly on edge and anxious. 
not long after this confrontation, Kieran went back to Afghanistan for what turned out to be his final mission. What was different about 2010, the third time I went over, is I'd started to shift my perspective of what I thought it was all about. And I had a friend over there who was also on his third tour and then he went outside the gate and was um, killed by an improvised explosive device. After the, you know, the, the loss of a mate, I said, I'm not going outside the wire, so the compound. I said, I just want to stay in here. I don't want to go out there and prove anything. Did my tour, came home, and then decided not to do it anymore. And, and part of that was reflecting on why we were even there. Was there any psychological counselling available for soldiers on the base? And if so, did people use it? Yeah, there was a psychologist or two. I, don't, I can't remember how many there were there. Sometimes after an event, um, you know, it'd be offered to you if you wanted, but it's like watching a Rambo movie. You don't see Rambo go down a path of war and then go get counselling. <laughs> that would ruin the plot, right? And, and so... It was the same for us. It's like, no, I don't get counselling. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a soldier. I don't, I don't do that. So there's already um, a denial before you even think about it. They call it, before you go back to Australia, um, I think they call it POPs, like a psychological operational script. I can't remember what it's called, where you see a psychologist. And they said, oh, did you see anything? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, a few things. You know, is it bad? And I'm like, no, no, I'm cool. You know, so, and then you get back to Australia and three months later, you've got to see the psychologist again. So... It's not so much that you go have counselling, it's that the psychologist checks in to see um, if what maybe what they deem was um, horrific to them, that perhaps you're in denial. Or I, I actually don't know how they assessed it. The problem with that is, is that sometimes the symptomology doesn't kick in till quite a fair few years later or many years later. So in that respect, one, I felt I was okay. Looking back, I wasn't okay. The next sort of big wake-up call was at a cafe in Cronulla, actually, where I was sitting with a mate having a coffee at the beach and there were roadworks happening next to the cafe. Anyway, the ground was shaking from the roadworks under our feet and that rumbling ground back in Afghanistan at least anyway, when a bomb would be detonated, it would shake the ground and so on. I think it was just the brain associating with that. There was diesel fumes in the air at this cafe and the next minute I took cover under the table and, um, you know, heart rate was going, I was really scared. And then I looked up at my mate and we just looked at each other and laughed and he's military as well. And he goes, you all right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, good mate, good. From the time Kieran stepped off the bus for basic training to when he left the army 13 years later, his whole life was regimented for him. Without this structure, Kieran felt lost. When I got out, I really struggled to come to terms with, you know, leaving and trying to adjust to being a civilian again. Someone goes, how, how can you not notice you're different? And I, I thought, well, how can when you're putting on weight, you don't notice each kilo coming on? until you step on the scales and it's marginally different to what you were before. It's sort of like that psychologically. I didn't really notice it until things got heavy, pun intended. What really happened in summary or in a nutshell was Monday something happened which was 
very annoying and depressing. Tuesday, another thing happened, which was annoying, depressing. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, repeat. Now, repeat, repeat. It was one thing after another. The, the savings I had in Afghanistan started to dry up. I tried to sell my car to help me pay for rent and get food. And then I found out my car had been, had the clock wound back. So I only got two grand for a $15,000 car. Um, I was working four casual jobs. And I think it was in 2014, there was nine people I knew in a two-week period took their lives. My best friend then passed away from cancer. And then another fella died in a parachuting accident that I knew. And it just got too much. The more these things occurred, the smaller the things that occurred down the track made just as big an impact as a large one. So over time, it could be a wrinkle in my sheet in my bed. I couldn't get it out. Now, to anyone who's happy, go lucky, well paid at the time, doing well, relationships good, and there's a wrinkle in the sheet, they'd probably laugh. But to someone who's continually gone through a bombardment of things, it builds up, and then that wrinkle in the sheet was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. So with the build-up of issues that continue to arise, there were outlets that I knew of, and one of them was, you know, I'll go to King's Cross, good old King's Cross. I don't know about today, but you could find all sorts of goodies there. I shouldn't even use that term. They're not goodies. But, yeah, I found myself uh, smoking ice using you know, methamphetamine and alcohol, even through the day, um, cocaine. You know, I remember 7am, waking up and having cocaine at 7am. Um, not cool, right? I was okay on these drugs, but when I wasn't on them, it was very dark, depressing, lethargic, uh, slow, unmotivated, tired. Uh, I was having memory problems, um, I thought that these things might actually help enhance those um, faculties of mind and they made it worse and so on. I talked to people about what that felt like and all I can say is it's like a, a, a dark room with, with no windows. The whole time it's just a black room with no windows and I'm in it. And I remember I'd planned my suicide. I'd had enough. And when I got home in that moment, I had a very vivid, clear picture of my mum, just strikingly vivid picture of my mum with red eyes and it looked like she'd just been or experienced severe grief or sorrow or been crying. Now, I don't know why that happened, but in that moment, that stopped me um, taking my life. Kieran's decision to stay alive was just the beginning. He called on his army training to drag himself back from depression, treating it like a survival mission, because in many ways, to him, it was. You get up after eight to ten hours sleep in the morning, and I'd need eight to ten more. The fatigue felt like my blood was made out of lead. It couldn't lift my body, but I knew that if I just lay there, that the brain won't change. You've got to move to change it. The motivation was I used identity and that was I'm a soldier. So, well, here's your new battle, dude, is the mind. Here's your battle. Do you identify as a soldier? Yes. Well, then fight. Get the hell up, even when you don't want to. And so I got up and then I would 
bend my hips, and then I'd straighten my right leg, and then I'd say, right, now straighten your left leg, now stand straight. Now take 15 steps to the bathroom, shave, and now brush your teeth, and now go work at this restaurant that I was working at in my little bow tie and my little vest, getting treated like a, um, I don't know, a slave. And then that was another barrier again. So I, I, I suppose without people knowing me, when I wore a uniform, people would be like, oh, you know, good on you, well done. Thanks for serving the country. But now I'm a waiter in a restaurant and people are clicking their fingers at me and going, oi, coffee, yesterday. <laughs> and so when people would say that, I could imagine doing violent things to them as soon as they said it. But that was a practice as well. You know, you can fight back, but it doesn't solve it. All those came together to help me to push through and, and change because a lot of people get depression or anxiety, which I was diagnosed with as well. And then that becomes who they are. And they're like, well, I've got to live with this now. I don't think that that's true. Like people who become a victim of stroke, they can't move some part of their body or um, their face or whatever, but they can, with enough effort and the right guidance, they can retrain the brain to start to get back to living better again. Now, depending on the depth of the wound, you might not get full function back but you can certainly get better than what you were. Alongside his anxiety and depression, Kieran was also diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Every day is a battle for him to manage his symptoms. I got um, a little scared recently when I was overseas in Japan. I was on a crowded bus and I had about 50 people pushing me into the corner, literally, and I started to freak out a little bit. And my partner, Nicole, was with me and she saw me and grabbed my hand, so that was nice. <laughs> and there was like a little, there was two Kirans on my shoulder, you know, like on a cartoon, the red one and the blue one. And the red one was going, right, fight, attack, you're getting pushed in a corner here, this is dangerous. And then the little blue me was being rational and saying, look, you know, this is the Japanese culture, this is very normal for them, you don't have to fight anyone, it'll end up worse if you do. That's it, that's about as bad as I got. And I just did some breathing on the bus and really brought that cortisol down. So you, you, you need not be injured your whole life and you, you can work towards being better. And that's, I guess, where I'm at now is where I'm trying to share that healing narrative with people. After he'd considered taking his own life, Karen began the slow process of recovery by talking about suicide more openly with his friends and family. And when he started talking about suicide, he realised he wasn't the only one who'd thought about taking their own life. I ended up having conversations with uh, 11 closest friends of mine in Maroubra. Nine of them had thought about suicide and they were okay with the conversation and, you know, obviously I led it and um, facilitated by sharing my own experience and, hey, you know, have you, I know you went through a, a rough patch. Did you think about suicide? And nine out of 11 of my close buddies had. And then I'd found out that family members had too. And then I found out that most people, if we get to 80 or 90 years of age, might have got to a point where we're like, yeah, I kind of felt like that one day. And that it's not to say that it's a good feeling, it's to say it's very normal 
and, and that with the right support and the right knowledge that people can get better again. I first came across Kieran when he was speaking at an event about mental health. These days, he works with men in the mining and construction industries, empowering them to have more open conversations with their friends and colleagues about mental health and suicide prevention. We know that about seven out of a hundred who took their lives only put their hands up and sought some professional help before they died. So reverse that, 93% did nothing before they took their lives. So we know that the majority are not putting their hand up. But 100% of people close to them knew they were going through a difficult time. If I ask an audience, do you think they said it clearly? Everyone says no. And it's like, well, then what were they doing? What What were the telling that they did? And it's like, not direct, I'm thinking about suicide. They probably, most of the time anyway, didn't say it like that. So you can ask an audience of people who have never studied any of this and they'll tell you, oh, his behaviour was different. He rocked up to work late for three weeks before the event. He wasn't shaving anymore when he used to every day. His car that he loved, he stopped looking after it. He was giving things away, putting his affairs in order. Um, Little things like that which didn't sit right with them. So that's one little empowerment stigma. The second one is, here's a toolkit when I leave today that you can use to apply in real life, that you can use at the footy club, that you can use at church or in in the waves when you're surfing or wherever you are with your family and with people you don't know. So we have that actual toolkit they take with them so they can really apply it in real life. And to date, one of the universities did a five-year review and found that if a construction site, at least, who ran our program fully, they saw a reduction in suicide rates over a five-year period. And who's they? Just run about blokes on work sites. You know, we, we didn't change anyone into psychologists or counsellors. We said, just keep being you, but just be more of you. It's like without knowing them, without knowing anyone, it's... If their buddy or friend or family member fell over headfirst into the mud, someone's going to grab them by the scruff of the neck and help them up. And in the same way, if they're really struggling with life, someone's going to see it and someone's going to try to give them a hand the best they can. So we give them the tools to use the best way they can. How similar is the mining and construction industries to the army? They're almost exactly the same. They've got different operation. One's building a building, one's, you know, involved in war and peacekeeping and the other's digging coal out of the ground. But there's a there's a structure in place, a hierarchical structure. And there's also mateship because a lot of the mines in Australia, they're geographically isolated from big cities. And so they've only got each other to rely on sometimes, living in their little hut, you know, for weeks at a time away from their wife and kids so they're passionate about getting in there and being able to help each other you can really learn a lot about how well you adapt in a situation and you also learn each other's or the other people's strengths and weaknesses around you too and by knowing the strengths and the weaknesses you can come together to fill holes in a jigsaw that you wouldn't otherwise do 
Kieran often uses humour and reflects on his own lived experience to connect with men in a way that's authentic, relatable, and makes a lasting difference. It's a heavy topic, so if we throw in a joke or someone in the crowd wants to take the mickey out of me, then let them. I think that, you know, we've got to approach training for mental health much differently than we do for any other thing. We're not talking about a new car, a new computer, a new machine. We're talking about human lives. And so I've got to give a real, real examples of how people talk and how they feel. And I know what it's like to sit in a crowd, have someone I've never met stand out the front and go, what's this crap we're listening to? And so I, I thought about that and I went, what would I want to hear? And I'd want to see someone at the front who made a mistake or who slipped up and could take the mickey out of themselves too. So I'll do those things openly to go, look, I'm, I don't want to make this look perfect. I, I just want to present as a human. And by the way, if you're in the crowd now listening and you think something I say is wrong, say it, man. And, you know, I've had one guy say, what is this, you know, crap we're listening to? What a load of this and that. Instead of fighting him back, I just say, who else agrees with him? Because <laughs> some people won't agree with it, and that's fine. And for the first time in that man's life, he had someone who didn't want to fight him back. And that can be the change that's needed to change that person's mind. Might not, but it certainly won't by fighting him. It took Kieran years of training to learn the skills to serve in a war zone and years of work to recover from the impact it had on him. He still works on his mental health every day, but he's no longer the man who is hiding under the table or attacking men on escalators. Now I've gone too far the other way, Wendy, and I sort of skipped down the street smelling flowers and, <laughs> and literally um, almost look weird. I don't really rage anymore. I get frustration. I'm sure there are going to be moments where I'm really angry, but I, I don't rage like that. Kieran might be a returned soldier, but he's still on the front line, saving lives. He is still a very brave man. And he's taught me that no matter how far you've fallen, there is always a way back. It may be hard, but it's worth it. Home Truths was presented by Wendy Searle. Executive producer Jenny Goggin. Sound production and music by Matt Nikolic. If you would like to receive a free notification each time I release a new episode, hit subscribe. And if you would like to get in touch and share a story of your own, email me at hello at wendysearle.com. That's Wendy, S-E-A-R-L-E dot com. Listener. If any of the issues in this episode have affected you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Lifeline provides all Australians experiencing a personal crisis access to a 24-hour crisis support and suicide prevention services.